you can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. Welcome to Back to the Bins. I am Trent Thornton, and here with me this time is a pissed-off old man I found to act as my co-host for this episode. Say hello, pissed-off old man. (laughs) You stupid kids! Get off my lawn, or I will kill you! I repeat, I will kill you! Okay, um... Security? Okay, I'm coming after you now! Holy shit! Yeah, that's right! You, you better run! Huh? Hey! Get, get, get your hands off me! I'm a veteran of two foreign wars! Okay, and while the security guards escort him out of the recording studio, I am back. That can only mean that Scott and Michael are too busy with work and family stuff to get off their lazy asses and record new episodes. Um, There was a point when the rumors were flying around that the economic downturn would force Damanzo Corps to outsource all of their shows to podcasters in India, but thankfully that seems not to be the case. And since you're listening to me now, uh, it can only mean that I finally got some downtime from my new job. Now, for those of you who don't know, I I recently got a new job as uh, as an assassin for the government. Now, you know, the pay's pretty good, uh, actually a lot better than you'd expect, and it's, uh, it's got a dental plan. Um, and just, you know, by the way, after all of those fights I got into that, that first time I went to prison, trust me, I need a dental plan. So, anyway, now, the whole concept of uh, this podcast is that it's called Back to the Bins. But I'm going to break format here, kind of, sort of, and it'll, uh, it'll all make more sense later on. But for right now, there's something else I want to talk about. I saw a video earlier today, and, um, (sighs) look, I've said from the get-go that I don't give two shits about Star Wars Blu-ray discs, alright? Couldn't fucking care less. I don't own an HDTV or a Blu-ray player or any of that, I mean, but I would say that my killer app for Blu-ray, assuming there even is one, it sure as hell not revised yet again Star Wars movies. I would happily plunk down my money for HD versions of the originals, and I'll come back to that in just a minute. Maybe I wouldn't buy them right away, necessarily, but, you know, eventually, yeah, I'd do it, you know. But until then, guys, look, I got the DVDs. You know, those are good enough for me. At this point, I can watch the saga any time I please, you know. And by this, you know, whenever I'm saying all this, the original films, the saga. Notice I'm not using the word trilogy anywhere in there. Uh, Here's one. I like the prequels. I like them a lot, in fact. Um, I find the prequels to be way over-criticized and the first trilogy to be way over-praised. 
I, you know, and the truth is, probably it's somewhere in, you know, in the middle in, in all of this. You know, I just to, for the movies in general, they're simply good, entertaining films that I can watch again and again in their original theatrical presentations. I don't care to see revisions, corrections, updates, modifications, whatever the hell you want to call it. All right? Couldn't care less. You see, I started out fairly pro-special edition. Hey, why not bring them up to scratch, right? That'll strengthen continuity with the prequels, right? After all, it's not like moviegoers will accept vintage 1970s special, 1970s, uh, special effects in, what was at the time, modern movies, right? Besides, it's only this one time, 1997, right? Rationalizations, all of them, you know? Revisionism is revisionism, and I much prefer facts and history these days. Truth. And the simple fact of the matter here is that no amount of fixes, quote-unquote, will ever make the prequels flow organically into the original trilogy. Can't fucking be done. You're always going to have continuity problems of some kind or another between those movies. Just let it go. The original trilogy and the prequel trilogy were made in different eras of filmmaking. Don't hide it. Accept it. The other thing here is that revising the original trilogy erases some amazing effects work from the record. Seriously, go back and watch any of them. You know, for me, the original edition of The Empire Strikes Back is what did it. It seriously blew my mind what those ILM effects technicians were able to achieve just with duct tape, styrofoam, and popsicle sticks. You know, for my money, those films did far more for visual effects uh, development than um, 5,000 Lord of the Rings movies and were and no doubt more fun to watch in any case, you know. And guys, that should be preserved, all right? But, you know, the other thing, you know, fuck it, guys. I'm 30, all right? And I'm at that age when I'm, I'm sick to hell of expanding my boundaries. I'm not open-minded. Never have been. Uh, not really. And, you know, f fuck you. That's not something I'm going to apologize for or equivocate about, all right? I don't like experimentation, and I've come to come to believe that newer isn't necessarily better. All I friggin' want is the movies I grew up watching in decent quality. Is that really so much to ask? And here's the thing. I grew up watching A New Hope, Empire, and, and Jedi. I, I grew up watching them, but I didn't care about them. I was more of a, of a comic book kid. I liked superheroes and action figures and cartoons a lot more than movies about old decrepit samurai fighting old decrepit samurai and iron lungs. I just didn't get why everyone spooged their pants about Star Wars. Yeah, the movies are decent, but, you know, seriously, what's the fuss all about? You know what changed all that? The motherfucking Phantom Menace. The Phantom Menace. After I walked out of that movie, I suddenly understood why people were so obsessed with the starships, the lightsabers, the characters, the story, the mythos, the, the history of the galaxy far, far away, you know, all of it. How did this Palpatine dude come to uh, attain absolute power? How and why did the Republic become the Empire? Now that you mention it, how in the hell did all the Jedi get wiped out? And since we're on the subject, if Obi-Wan is supposed to be this amazing, badass Jedi, how did Anakin become a Sith on his watch? Now, 
Is that the way that some blowhard original trilogy douchebag purist would want me to have joined the party? Well, probably not. But I don't care. That's my baggage. And at the risk of sounding like a Lucas apologist, although I don't really know how that's possible at this point, this, this really is a six-film saga to me, you know? None are really complete without the rest. And guys, I don't need a computer-generated Yoda through all of the Phantom Menace. Yeah, the, the puppet in the original version was ten different kinds of messed up. But A, that's the puppet that was in the movie originally. And B, I don't care what anybody says, the CGI replacement is no improvement. I can deal with a computer-generated Yoda in episodes 2 and 3 because those films were designed for a computer-generated Yoda. Hell, I'd even go so far as they needed a computer-generated Yoda, you know, who could do all of that walking and talking and emoting and fighting and all the other stuff he did in those movies, period. It needed to be there. But the puppet in episode 1? Not perfect. Not even close. But that's the best option available and, I might add, the most true to history. All of this to say, I'm not going to be buying the Blu-ray discs, um, or indeed any, any Star Wars set that doesn't include the original versions of all six movies. I have quite a few of them on you know, DVD already, just like many of you, I suspect. Um, and I, but guys, I'm drawing the line in the sand. I'm not going to spend another dime on this stuff uh, until those original versions are made available. And guys, don't believe George's bullshit excuse, alright? They do exist. 90% of the remastering work for them was done ages ago just in making the 1997 Special Edition, which looked gorgeous in theaters, even if no home video presentation has yet reflected that. All that leaves on the table is like a whopping 10% uh, that would need to be remastered and brought up to modern standards. In other words, basically the seat the sequences that were cut out of the movies to be replaced with CGI stuff, that's the stuff that would need to be uh, remastered. And guys, I'm sorry, if you can't do that work for less than ninety dollars or $100,000, get out of the business. All of this to say, all I want is my original versions. Okay, now with all that stuff out of the way, I just want to get it off my chest. Um, uh, the comic book this time out is Retroactive 1990's uh, Superman One-Shot. The cover price is $4.99. The writer is Louise Simonson. Penciler is John Bogdanov. Inker is John Bogdanov. Colorist is Carlos Mongual. Associate editor is Christy Quinn. Editor is Ben Abernathy. Cover by John, Bogd uh, Bo John Bogdanov. Uh, special thanks for the background assist to Howard Simpson, and Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, and subsequently stolen by their parasite heirs. So, as to the plot, uh, the issue starts with Lex getting what's left of his haircut while he rages about Superman dominating the headlines. When his barber suggests that both a comb-over and a visit to the doctor, Lex fires him and decides that if he's going down, he's taking Superman with him. Lex heads to a secret bunker where the finishing touches are being put on a genetically engineered monster that they're calling a cruiser. The best way I can describe this thing is a, a, a purple whale with arms and claws and a mouth that's all teeth. Generic mad scientist informs Lex and the audience that the monster's excretions melt everything it touches. But those same excretions are what allow it to burrow underground at such amazing speed. Exposition out of the way, Lex cuts off the rest of ge uh, generic mad scientist Spiel order and orders her to uh, release it so that he can destroy Metropolis so that he can then rebuild it. In case it hasn't become obvious yet, Lex is, as I believe the clinical term goes, 
Shat bit Nuckin' Futz. Meanwhile, at the Daily Planet, Lois is finishing off a phone interview with Mayor Berkowitz while Clark tells his agent that he'll never do a Lex News interview to promote any of his novels. At that moment, Bruce, Wayne I assume, although I don't think anything in the issue really says that, uh, Bruce calls uh, Clark to tell him that a 2.0 magnitude earthquake was measured with uh, the LexCorp Tower as its epicenter. At that same time, Lois is finishing up a separate phone conversation with Professor Hamilton, you know, busy girl, who's called to warn her that the Underworlders are blaming Cadmus for the plague that has selectively infected many clones that are living in, or else originating from, Metropolis. They're basing this on the bulletproof theory that the floods in the tunnels following Superman's fu funeral uh, swept up a lot of the Underworlders, and um, this was uh, water that had been poisoned by uh, Cadmus so as to only affect clones. Perry White uh, interrupts all of this to call uh, Lois and Clark into a meeting to discuss how the Planet staffers can rekindle interest in a uh, printed newspaper when most people uh, get their news from TV nowadays. Clark bails out early and changes into Superman, though, uh, so that he can save people from a collapsing tenement building. Cut back to Lex's secret bunker, and it's revealed that Lex sent the cruiser that he and generic mad scientist genetically engineered to that tenement so that a luxury high-rise uh, would replace it after it had been destroyed. However, generic mad scientist is worried that the cruiser will only become larger, more powerful, and therefore more difficult to stop as it continues feeding. Lex is having none of it, though. After that, Lois swings by Professor Hamilton's place, where a meeting between Ham and several Underworlders is, uh, is already underway. Kloster explains that the Underworlders believe that uh, Cadmus flooded their tunnels with uh, water designed specifically to poison clones. Uh, while putting the uh, finishing touches on the collapsing tenement story, Clark hears another tremor, this one affecting the subway that Lois is rather conveniently riding on, so he dashes off to the rescue. However, Superman arrives too late and the train derails at Swan Street. However, it's unclear if that's anywhere near Anderson Avenue. For his own part, though, Lex is enjoying the carnage and destruction. Later, Superman is having a conference at uh, the Cadmus Project where there's yet more exposition concerning who's uh, so far been affected by the clone plague and who hasn't been. This little meeting is interrupted, though, when the cruiser crashes through the meeting. Um, Superman and the cruiser calmly discuss their differences over tea, with both sides acknowledging the other's point of view. The issue ends with Superman and the cruiser shaking hands and going their separate ways. Actually, no. Superman and the Cruiser battle it out under the streets of Metropolis in general, and beneath Keith and Myra's orphanage in particular. The Cruiser's excretions prove harmful even to Superman, destroying his cape, burning his skin, and even melting off all of his hair. The hair on his head, anyway. We don't really see anything else because this is supposed to be a mostly PG-rated comic book. Lex is having the time of his life watching all of this unfold from his secret bunker, but generic mad scientist informs him that they've officially lost control of the Cruiser. For whatever reason, this that inspires the cruiser to make a beeline for LexCorp Tower. In a last-ditch effort to put the cruiser down, Superman forces the monster towards um, uh, the far underground, uh, beneath the, the Earth's mantle, and into the magma below. But not before the cruiser wreaks some serious damage on LexCorp Tower. Superman's gone for about 40 minutes, which makes both the media and Lex wonder that he might really be dead for good this time, but nope, Superman comes flying back to the, uh, to the surface. Armed with a new buzz cut, Superman heads over to Lois's apartment where they kiss, and in the final panel, Lois rubs Superman's head. So, to business. When I do the occasional guest spot on Back to the Bins, I usually try to steer clear of Superman-related stuff, as, really, I, I consider that to, to be um, uh, Michael Bailey's turf. You know, he'll probably do a better job at covering it 
than I would, so why set myself up for comparison? But obviously I'm breaking uh, that rule this time around because, you know, I give it about 50-50 odds that he'll ever, you know, talk about this uh, retroactive one-shot. And speaking of which, the, uh, the basic concept uh, behind these retroactive uh, one-shots is that a creative team from a given decade, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, what, you know, whatever, um, comes back to tell an in-continuity uh, one-shot story from their time on the character. And this has uh, yielded some some interesting results, and I, I, I use that in uh, the loosest sense possible. Um, I don't think it's been particularly uh, beneficial for uh, Superman. Um, of all the writers you could have chosen for the 1970s Superman retroactive, Marty Pasco is pretty much the last choice on my list. And even then, it'd be at gunpoint, against my will, as a last resort, and only when all other options have failed. For the 1980s uh, Superman retroactive, yeah, it was okay, but with apologies to Scott, uh, to Scott Gardner, I, I was disappointed that it was basically a Crisis on Infinite Earths tie-in. We have Crisis on Infinite Earths tie-ins out the wazoo already. It's hard to get excited about yet another Crisis tie-in 25 years later. Now, there was a point in the early 80s, just before Lex Luthor got his battle armor, where Superman and Lois, uh, they broke up, and there was some, uh, some pretty heavy drama that was going on there. And, you know, given how weak uh, Bronze Age Superman stories tended to be by the 1980s, I thought that the Lois Superman breakup would be the natural choice for any retroactive 80s special. Or, hey, here's an idea. They could have brought John Byrne back for a one-shot taking place in Superman's early days on the job, which is a period, you know, Byrne has said that he was disappointed that he, he never really got to cover. Anyway, what I'm saying here is that the retroactive specials up to this point haven't exactly thrilled me to death, so what's the deal with the 1990s retroactive special? Um, well, based on the length of Lex Luthor's hair in this issue, my guess and that's all this is, just a guess, would be that this issue takes place in between Adventures of Superman number 510 and Action Comics number 697. That arguably doesn't work so well, though, since Adventures number 510 ended with Superman swearing to track down Bizarro. However, this issue makes no mention of uh, Bizarro that I can recall off the top of my head. But it does otherwise uh, tie in pretty well with the Bizarro's World, Power Surge, and Battle for Metropolis storylines uh, that were going on at the time in terms of overall continuity, if not in terms of specific continuity, if that makes any sense. Uh, overall, uh, this issue, it really, it really meant a lot to me. Um, I was following um, the uh, Superman titles heavily. Uh, when these stories uh, first came out, so this is right in my wheelhouse of uh, Superman comics. How well does it tie into continuity overall? Well, I think it does okay, but I'll leave that one to Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor when they cover it on From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which you can check out by going to the supermanhomepage.com. There are some continuity bits I could have done without, though. Um, apart from The Guardian... I've never really cared much for the Cadmus Project or those characters. I couldn't possibly care less that Jack Kirby created the Newsboy Legion. They still irritate the snot out of me anytime they're on the page. Uh, 
Um, we also have a thankfully brief cameo appearance from Keith and Myra at the orphanage. Now I call it I call it thankfully uh, brief because I never liked those characters either. I always felt that Keith was everything that people think Jimmy is. You know, the nitwit character who's too stupid to so to uh, so much as you know tie his own shoes without Superman's personal and immediate intervention. Uh, the joke was always that you know without Superman around to correct him, Jimmy would wash out power sockets with water. And frankly, I could picture Keith doing that. I could also picture Myra griping at him about it. And not because she'd be wrong to do so, but because griping seems to be just about all she ever did. So, um, now guys, look, it may sound like I hated this issue, and I, I really didn't. I just don't like those characters, never like those concepts, you know, and anyway, but I guess, you know, since we're, d we're uh, dwelling on the negative here, um, I'm, j I'm just going to lay it on the line. If I'd been given my druthers, you know, I'm actually not, I'm not sure who I would have uh, wanted to bring back for this issue. I mean, I'd love to see more uh, Carl uh, Kiesel and Tom Grummet uh, Superman stories. I always felt like they captured the fun, adventurous angle to Superman's world, you know, really well. I, I, I loved that team. Short-lived as it was, I, I, I loved it. Uh, likewise, uh, Dan Jurgens and Brett Breeding coming back, uh, that would have been uh, a welcome thing for me too. Jerry Ordway? I'd be there with bells on. As, um, as a matter of fact, I probably would have preferred anybody, and I do mean anybody, apart from who we actually got. I mean, I freaking hate Butch Geiss's artwork, so I suppose he would have been worse, but, but otherwise, Simonson and Bogdanov would have been pretty much my completely last choice for this. Now, I like, I like John Bogg's art, alright? Don't get me wrong. But he necessarily goes along with Louise Simonson when it comes to Superman stories, and I've just never been a fan of her take on Superman. The orphanage characters, uh, you know, Keith and Myra and the rest, they were pretty much her, sandblo her sandbox to uh, play in. Much like, say, Jose Delgado had been Jerry Ordway's character, or how Roger Stern, whether through happenstance or design, handled a lot of Lex Luthor's stuff. As much as I liked, you know, Boggs' art, you know, back in the day, it was never really strong enough to overcome what I felt were a lot of fundamental weaknesses in almost any given script. And you know what, guys, I'm f perfectly willing to acknowledge this just could be my baggage. This is, you know, there's maybe technically nothing that's wrong with Louise Simonson as a writer. I'm just saying, if she's writing the story, I usually find it to be, in the best of cases, usually pretty lackluster. Um... Anyway, but that stuff being said, it's, it's less of an issue here since the Orphanage characters, they play a pretty minimal role in this story. The battle for Metropolis itself is a very Cadmus-centric uh, storyline to begin with, so there's really no getting around that. But even so, you know, whether it's from the story itself being awesome, uh, you know, to begin with, or because it's been just so long since we've gotten a new story set in the pinnacle of the Burn Age, which is what I consider this to be, um, it all plays uh, pretty well. I really enjoy the issue. Um, now, as far as Lex uh, is concerned, if you're a complete outsider to the Burn Age era of Superman uh, comics, and particularly for this uh, storyline, Lex might seem incredibly out of uh, character. Um, just to read it, it just seems really strange. 
but um, it was established in other parts of the story that were published again, you know, I guess like 15 years ago at this point, or however long it's been, 20 years, um, that Lex was slowly but surely going batshit cuckoo as a result of the uh, clone uh, degeneration plague that he'd been infected with. So uh, that's really the uh, background on that. Now, to go back to, uh, you know, John Bogdano's art, as far as that's concerned, he always struck me as a sort of Joe Shuster-influenced penciler. I, I think his Superman bears a pretty striking facial resemblance to George Reeves, but his line work in general, I think, owes a lot to Joe Shuster. You know, I always wondered that John Bogg is a little closer to how Joe Shuster's art would have looked if comic books had if they'd had the same production value in Schuster's day that they did in, in uh, Bogdano's. But really, apart from that, I find it refreshing, the, the George Reeves angle. You know, if any artist draws Superman to resemble an actor these days, nine times out of ten, it'll be uh, Christopher Reeve. And when it's not, it's invariably Blandon Ralph. Sorry, I just I don't understand what everybody sees in that dull plank of wood, but anyway. So, to see a penciler intentionally style his Superman somewhat on George Reeves is original, kind of by default nowadays, um, and he doesn't do it in every single panel, but every now and then, if you're looking for it, you'll find it. You know. And anyway, I just, I, I really appreciated it back then. I really appreciate it now. So, uh, that's, that's that. Um, another note is that, uh, you know, even though Bog was always a pretty good penciler, I think he's really stepped up his game in the intervening years, as this issue really handily demonstrates. Um, he was always in strong command of the page and general storytelling, so there's really not a whole lot new to report there, but in terms of overall line work, um, and I guess style, uh, he's really improved. Um, I put this ahead of basically anything Superman-related he's ever drawn. And... Um, yeah, I, I think that's pretty much it. So I think that's really what I have to say for this issue. I'm here today to talk to you about a subject near and dear to my heart. It is Pocket Lint. Starting this October, I challenge you to boldly go where no man has gone before as you follow me in my new podcast devoted to Pocket Lint Collecting. Long have Pocket Lint Collectors lived on the very fringes of society. We are the ones that stamp collectors, beat up, bully, and torment, but no more. Starting this October, we will have a forum for ourselves. I encourage each of you to join me. Thank you. And yes, Clint McCants is still a douchebag. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh.
we've got quite an assortment of emails this time around. As ever, we value feedback from our listeners and appreciate what we received here. If you loved this episode, feel free to donate copious amounts of money to Back to the Bins to finance future episodes and hopefully guilt the regular host into recording more often. Every little bit counts, especially if it goes toward the Trent Desperately Needs to Retire Fund. If you hated this episode, blame Scott Gardner. Now, to emails. Jeff Loeb wrote in to say, Heard your last episode. You know I'm going to sue you, right? Thanks, Jeff. And yes, the action figures were indeed delayed, but we expect them out in the second quarter of 2012. Arthur Ratnick wrote in to say, Take the Grozen apples and drat the Framus with the Lingus button because the skunk has an umbrella at the dentist. Bamford and Acolytes topple joyfully when clouds ride chicken bone motorcycles, but I may change my mind later. Even though I don't claim any particular expertise in French politics, I must say, I quite agree with you, Arthur. Scott Gardner wrote in to say, That was a real dickhead thing you said about Brandon Routh. You know that, don't you? Yes, I do. Michael Bailey wrote in to say, I decided not to get the operation after all. Turns out it would put me in a very different tax bracket, and my accountant advised against it at this juncture. Jeffrey Taylor writes in to say, You're just another soulless redhead with no soul because you have red hair. Thanks anyway, Jeffrey, but I was never much into collecting too much else besides comic books. And finally, Jessica Simpson wrote in to say, I can change. I promise I can change. I just want to come home. I want things to be like they were. I was happy. We were happy. Plus, I picked up some new toys that I want you to try out on me. Like always, everyone, we appreciate every email that we get. Without you listeners to contribute, this podcast would be pretty useless and pathetic. So thanks to each of you for writing, and I'll talk to you again next time. Good night. Anytime you plan to visit Amazon.com, please be aware that if you use the Amazon.com link located on our website, www.2TrueFreaks.Libson.com, Two True Freaks will receive a referral bonus for any items you purchase. There is absolutely no additional cost to you whatsoever for doing this. All proceeds go directly toward keeping new episodes of all your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated podcasts rolling, and it really helps us out. So please, Use our Amazon.com link anytime you plan to visit Amazon.com. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzocor of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks.
and we'll see you next week.